good morning again, and if you have a Bible with you, whether uh, in your lap or on your phone, I invite you to take it and turn to the book of Malachi, or as my kids have been calling it, Malachi, and uh, you, can, you can turn there. This is the final message of our summer series through the Minor Prophets. We are doing one sermon on each of the Minor Prophets, and uh, we've titled this series uh, The Book of the Twelve, because that's how it would have been familiar to uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, people in ancient times. We call it the minor prophets. That comes from a Latin phrase. And again, that word minor does not mean that they're insignificant or unimportant. It just means they're smaller and shorter than the larger, the larger prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the like. I was uh, talking with, uh, with a friend, a uh, pastor friend of mine who came to visit the office just the other day. And and uh, he was talking to uh, David Wearsby, and if that name Wearsby sounds familiar, David is the son of uh, the famed Warren Wearsby, but uh, he pastors up north a ways, and, and David does as well. So David stops by his church every now and then and visits with a guy he knows there. And, uh, and uh, David made the comment to him, he goes, don't, don't ever do uh, a series on the minor prophets in the summer, you'll lose half the congregation. And uh, this pastor friend of mine laughed at me and pointed and said, ha, ah, that's you. And so I'm thankful... I'm thankful you're still here. I don't think we've lost quiet half, but, uh, it's, uh, but, we're, but uh, it's been a blessing, I trust, to you. Again, we're not going to uh, read the whole book, of course, but I just want to read the first five, five verses as it kind of introduces us into how the book will go. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? The Lord replies, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom even says, we're we're shattered, but we're going to rebuild the ruins, the Lord host says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So there I was uh, not long before I was called to be the pastor here, sitting across the table from an older, wiser, godly man, a mentor of mine. And he asked me how life was doing and what God had been teaching me in the, the season of life that I was in. And I, and I answered, and I was excited about all that God had been showing me, and all that God had been teaching me, and all the ways God was working in my life. Except the problem was, I didn't realize this, but apparently I was focusing more on me and more on my life than I really was focusing on God and what God was doing in my life. And so this, this old, older, wiser, godlier man, he... Without really any segue into it, he walked me around to a couple different Bible passages, and I couldn't really get where he was going. He didn't really say much, but he walked me to a couple different Bible passages, and then he, he stopped and he looked up to me. He said, Zach, when I asked you that question, I was hoping I would see a little bit more humility from you. And then no joke, he basically said, have a good day, stood up and walked out of the coffee shop. And this is kind of what God is doing in the book of Malachi. He's bringing the charges against his people, and then he's he's leaving it to them to decide how they're going to respond. And just to let you know, I still keep in touch with this older, godlier mentor, and that was used greatly in my own life. 
And God now is going to do that to his people. Now, God isn't leaving them in that he's abandoning them. And he no longer wants anything to do with them. But he's kind of just, he's sitting across the table from them. He's bringing the charge. And then he's going he's gonna to walk out of the room and say, what are you going to do with what I just told you? Now, Malachi was written around 460 BC. So that if you've kind of kept up with the dates, and I don't expect you to remember all of this, of course. But it's about, it's about 80 to 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah, the previous two books we've looked at. And so we would even place this, this prophecy in Nehemiah, probably most likely the latter chapters of Nehemiah. Now, the style in which this book is written is actually pretty unique. It's not something we've seen in any of the prior minor prophets. It actually follows uh, kind of what we read there. What happens is, is God, God makes a statement, and then they come back and say, well, prove it, God. Like, we, like in verse 2. God says, I loved you. And they say, prove it. And it kind of happens, actually, as a matter of fact, that, that phrase, but you say, is used nine times in chapters 1 to 3. So it's like God says something to them, and, they, and God says, but here's what you'll say. You'll say, prove it. How, how have you loved us? How have we done these wrong things? And it kind of goes back and forth. These are disputation sort of speeches where God is making moral observations about the people. And he's going to center it, around, center it around six different topics. But uh, before we get to that, the, the broad scope of it is they were defiling the priesthood. They were divorcing their wives. They were disregarding tithes and offerings. They were robbing God. They were accusing God. They were faithless to God. And again, each time, each time God brings this to them, they, say, they, they defiantly and arrogantly say, show us. Show us how. And so as we jump into this, I want you all to be thinking about this question. If, you, if God were to sit across the table from you, in your home or at a coffee shop, wherever, if God were to sit across the table from you and he would point out sin in, in your life, or if you were to sit across and point out sin in my life, what, what would he point out? If you've, gone, if you've been here for any, any portion of this series, you know that God has some pretty strong words against sin and sinners in, these, in this book of the Twelve, in these minor prophets. And that might not sit well with you. You know, like, the strong words from God towards sin and sinners. And it's often because we just have way too high a view of ourselves, a too, a too deep of a love of, for ourselves, and too great an ambition to, for achieving our own desires. And here's the thing with God. God gets in the way of those things. And as a matter of fact, I would argue this is one of the most amazing things about God, is that he's willing to get in the way of those things. He's willing to get in the way of our love for self. He's willing to get in the way of our ambition for achieving our own desires. He's willing to get in the way of our, our high view of thinking of ourselves, and he's willing to say, hey, you, you thinking that way will lead you to ruin. And so God is going to end the Old Testament... The final words of the Old Testament before 400 years of silence, 400 years of silence, and he's going to reveal six disputes he has with his people. And here's the first one. We read it already, but it's denying God's love. They were denying God's love. God says, I love you. People respond with that denying question. Prove it. And so God does. And his issue, here he goes back to Jacob and Esau. Now, the story of Jacob and Esau goes back to Genesis 27, or even Genesis 25, really, but even further back to Abraham. So the story is, in accordance with God's manifold wisdom and grace, God chose one man 
on the, uh, one man out of everybody who is on the planet to be the man to father a nation. And this nation would be specially chosen and set apart by God to proclaim the greatness of his glory to all people. And that man's name was Abraham. So God shows Abraham, he says, I'm going to make a whole nation out of you, and that whole nation is going to be my people set apart to proclaim my greatness. So Abraham had a son, his name was Isaac. And so God went to Isaac and said, hey, you're going to carry on the covenant promises. You're the next guy in line. I'm going to continue to fulfill my promises through you. Now Isaac was the father of twins through his wife Rebekah. Now the twins were Jacob and Esau. Now the question is, who gets the covenant promise? Who, who continues this promise of God to create a nation? Is it going to be Jacob or is it going to be Esau? Well, before they were even born, while they were still in their womb, God told their mother, Rebecca, that Jacob would be the one to receive the family promise. He didn't choose Esau. He said, it's going to be Jacob. Now, the, now, this was all before they were born. And so what God is saying here, if you want to know how much I love you, look at the fact that you, they, these, all these people, they were descendants from Jacob and Israel and Abraham and Isaac. And so God says, I chose you. What, what other proof of my love do you need than that I chose you? I chose Jacob over Esau. As a matter of fact, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And that was the great love with which God loved Jacob before Jacob was even born. It was so great a love that in comparison, God's actions towards Esau, namely not choosing him, seemed like hate. And that's what this love-hate, the love-hate words here mean. Okay, these aren't the often petty emotions of us humans. Okay, so it's not like God had some sort of emotional feeling of disgust towards Esau. No, he just graciously chose Jacob to be the heir of the promise he made to Abraham. Jesus in the New Testament would actually use the same love-hate idea in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying there? Is he saying that the moment you become a Christian, you have to turn into this curmudgeon, grumpy, you know, mistreating people and just hating people, being bitter towards people? Absolutely not. Jesus is saying that a person's love for him must be so great that in comparison, all lesser loves, including love for your own life, should seem like hate. Jesus must be our greatest love, everything else a lesser love. And the audacity... The audacity of these people to go to God and say, prove your love for us. As if the last 1,500 years of God's faithfulness to his promise wasn't enough. And that kind of leads to the problem here, isn't it? The problem of God's love. It's God chose Jacob over Esau. Why didn't he choose Esau? Esau's line would actually become a hostile nation and they would receive God's judgment. You notice there it says, this one whom the Lord is angry forever. And you should go through, read Romans 9 sometimes, uh, sometime, because Paul actually uses this verse to talk about God's choosing. And Paul brings up questions like, well, why doesn't God just choose to save everyone? Isn't there injustice with God if he chooses some and not others? 
I mean, this, that's the problem of God's love, isn't it? That he would choose some and not others? That he would reject Esau? Is that the problem of God's love? I would argue, no, it's not. Now, I want to clarify, the problem isn't with God. The problem is with our understanding of God's love. But the problem here is not that God rejected Esau. The problem is that God loved Jacob. That's where our problem should be. If, you, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Genesis, Jacob did not turn, to be, turn out to be that great of a guy. He didn't live this most fabulous life. There's a problem with our understanding of God's love. I mean, oftentimes we're so shocked that God doesn't choose everyone to be saved, yet we rarely stop to marvel that he saved us. If you have been saved, if you are a follower of Jesus. And the purpose of all this, it says at the end, is that great is the Lord. And I'll just leave it with Ephesians chapter 1, where it says the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? The purpose of his will. What's the aim of all this? To the praise of his glorious grace. And God brings a charge against him, says, you're denying my love. And they say, prove your love. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and your eyes have been opened to see the beauty and the light and the glory of the gospel, if your heart has been convinced that you must trust in Jesus as your savior, that your works, that your religion won't do anything for you before God, but it's only through faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. If your eyes have been opened to that, you should marvel that you even, you even were able to believe but we must move on because we've got a lot to get through here. Not only were they denying God's love, secondly, they were despising God's name. That's in chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. So kind of a bigger chunk here. I just want to read the first couple verses here of, chapter, uh, of this section, beginning in verse 6. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. So if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest. So he's addressing the priest. And then he says, who despise my name. And here it is again. But you say, how have we despised your name? And God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and lame and sick. They are despising God's name. Now, if you want a definition for despising God's name, it's very simply, it's, it's a word-only worship. Or it's a, wor- it's a worship that's heartless and polluted. We see that word in this, in this passage. It's self-focused, God-rejecting, and he's addressing the priests. They weren't honoring him as their heavenly father. They weren't, they weren't respecting him as their master. And they asked, well, how have we despised your name? And they were despising God's name by offering lame animals as a sacrifice. Now, if, you've, if you're not familiar with, with, with kind of what's going on here, and you haven't been around the Bible, that's fine. If you're like, what's the big deal about offering a lame animal uh, or an animal with blemish on the sacrifice? It goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus, uh, where God actually gives a command. He says, animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You might say, what's the big deal? What's going on here? We have to understand what these sacrifices were meant for. They they did a number of things, but one of the biggest things these sacrifices were for is that they were to point towards the Lamb of God who would die as the perfect sacrifice for sinners on the cross, Jesus Christ. 
And so Jesus was going to be the perfect lamb of God, without blemish, without sin. And so these sacrifices that they brought were to picture that Messiah, that Savior, that, that same, that same uh, uh, sacrifice. And so the sacrifices had to be perfect because they were pointing to the perfect Jesus who died as a once-for-all sacrifice for sinners. That's Hebrews 10. And so he couldn't allow any blemishes on this temporary sacrificial system. But they were doing it all the time. As a matter of fact, God even says uh, in, in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, he says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you? Like, if you're trying to impress the governor, are you going to take these maimed, lame, blind, gross-looking animals and serve that up to the governor? And so God is saying here, you, you care way more about pleasing people and getting the affirmation of man than you do about me. And then there's another side of this. It go, in verse 8, he says, uh, will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And in verse 9, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Here's the flip side of it. They were asking God to treat them with favor. Well, blatantly going against his command and, and, and treating God like he's second class or even lower than dirt. And they're like, hey, God, treat us with favor. It's amazing what verse 10 says. Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors. God says, if there was only someone there who just had enough sense, just close it all down. Get rid of the sacrifices, get rid of, get rid of the, the religion, get rid of everything you're doing, just get rid of the worship, just close it down. And God says almost the exact same thing to the church. Does anybody remember what the last words of Jesus were to his church? It wasn't the Great Commission. It was repent, or I'm going to close your church down. In Revelation chapters 1 to 3. The very last words of Jesus to the church were, you better get things right and worship me in holiness and purity, or I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. I'm going to close your church down. Make no mistake about it. God prefers a closed church over a vain church. God's name is great, and it will be great, and that's kind of how chapter 1 ends. But God prefers a closed church over a vain church. And Jesus is not afraid to come and close the door of any church that's wrapped up in the vanity of this world and lost sight of the most important thing, which is the gospel. When we get into the first part of chapter 2, God kind of lays into the priests a little bit more here. And, he, and he, he contrasts the profane priests from the pure priests. And, uh, and he goes through and he says the priests here uh, were responsible for instruction. That's chapter 2, verse 6. So they were responsible for teaching the people, proclaiming the truth of God to people. And these, these, the pure priests, the ones who followed God, they would proclaim it without partiality. They would do it without desires of selfish gain. They would do it with the intention of saving sinners from their sin. And that's what verse 6 says. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. That's the goal. But the profane priests didn't even deserve to be in office. Now, I just want to bring a couple applications as we talk about despising God's name. 
And first is, we despise God's name when our indulgence on self and stuff far outweighs our giving to God. They were giving God just the bare minimum, the whatever. They, they cared a lot more about saving money themselves and spending it on themselves. Here's what Warren Rearsby has to say about this passage in this section. He says, Our offerings to God are an indication of what's in our hearts. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew chapter 6. People who love the Lord and his work can easily prove it with their checkbooks. Oh no, here's a preacher talking about checkbooks. Giving is a grace, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And if we've experienced the grace of God, we will have no problem giving generously to the Lord who has given so much to us. We despise God's name. When our spending and investments on self and stuff far outweighs our giving to God. Secondly, we despise God's name when worshiping God becomes a wearisome task. When, when it becomes a wearisome task where it just kind of gets boring and blah. And that actually kind of comes in, uh, in the latter part of chapter 2 which we'll get to in a minute, but in verse 17, he says, that, he says you're just kind of wearied out. It's all just kind of blah, and you're wearying God. Well, that's what had come for them. They were just kind of going through the motions. And I actually, uh, chapter 13 of chapter, or verse 13 of chapter 1, they're saying, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, the worship of the Lord. What a weariness, you're snorting at it. Says the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or his lamb or sick, and he goes back to the offerings. But we despise God's name when worshiping God becomes a wearisome task. And if Jesus bores you and wears you out, then the testimony you're giving other people is that Jesus is boring and not really worth following. You know, college football season just kicked off. And, uh, and if, you, if you're not unaware, there's the, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, they, their, their rivalry against the Michigan Wolverines, is so intense and so severe. The Ohio State Buckeyes and their team and their fans, they won't even say the name Michigan. They actually refer to Michigan, you may know, as the team up north. So anytime they're talking in a press conference about, about you know, the team, the, the Michigan they're going to play or anything, they always just refer to Michigan as the team up north. And I think that's, that's what we kind of can do with God. Maybe if we're not so adamantly against him, but even if we're just bored of him, and he might be in here this morning, and you're just like, yeah, God is just kind of the, the guy up north. You know, he's the guy upstairs. And we can have same, kind of that same sort of despising of God's name. Not only that, we despise God's name when we attempt to remove the stumbling of the cross. To create a message palatable to a man or woman's sinful heart is the, to despise the God of the Bible. And that's why he laid into the priests here. And this goes to whether or not we're, we're followers of Jesus or not. We've got to be able to sit across the table and say what God says. You've got to be able to sit across the table and say what God says. That's James chapter 5, where he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, notice this, will save his soul from death. Jude 22 and 23 says something very similar about saving people from the very fires of hell. We're not here to save feelings. We're here to save souls. And so we must proclaim the gospel. We can't do anything to try to remove the stumbling of the cross. Because the gospel is good news when you tell them 
of the bad news, of sin, and then you get to tell them about Jesus. I mean, do you ever get tired? Do you have anybody in your life, they, it's just everything they talk to, you, talk to you about, it's always all bad. They're just always telling you the bad things, and they never get around to Jesus. Like, even if they're confronting you, it's just like, okay, I get it. I'm a, I'm a terrible, rotten sinner. Is there, is there some hope for me? Well, this is the great news about the gospel. We get to tell people about their sin, and then we get to tell them about Jesus. That Jesus died for your sins, and he rose again so that you could be welcomed into God's family. Not just tolerated, not just put up with, not just put out in the guest house and fed some crumbs every now and then. In Jesus Christ, every sinner is brought fully into the family of God and receives the full blessings of Jesus Christ. That's the good news we offer. It's not good news if we don't talk the way God wants us to talk. Let's move on to the third one. Not only were they denying God's love, not only were they despising God's name, they were defiling God's covenant. In chapter uh, 2, verses 10 through 16. Here's what's happening. Read just verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has purveyed the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How? And has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what's going on here is they are defiling God's covenant by defiling marriage. That's what God's going to get into here. He rebukes the men who divorce their wives and run to foreign women. They broke the marriage covenant in order to pursue a relationship where there was no commitment, no fear of God, no pursuit of heavenly purposes. And what he starts out, he says, we all have one father. When God created us, men and women have equal standing before God, so it is wickedness to defile women and to defile the marriage covenant. And instead of honoring that standing, the men abandoned their wives for idolatrous women. And verse 12 is kind of, is, uh, or even, uh, yeah, verse 12, it, it says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of this man who does this. And then notice what he does. He brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. He divorces his wife, runs off to chase his sexual fantasies, shows up to church on Sunday, and says, I'm good. Guys, this is the absurdity of sin. And the deception goes even further because then they ask again here, they're saying, why doesn't he favor us? Verses 13 and 14. Why is God not showing any favor to us? Why aren't we receiving all those blessings, those promised blessings? And God's saying, it's because you're treating marriage like garbage. You're treating marriage like it's just something to be thrown out. Something to be disregarded, something that's inferior to your lustful passions. And God says here, listen, I was, I was there. Verse 14, God, I witnessed, I witnessed your marriage. But you've been faithless to this woman. She's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not, he, did not God make them one? Marriage is a oneness. Marriage is a oneness. So God makes the man and the woman one flesh. So this, they make the covenant during the wedding ceremony. And they 
consummate that covenant on the wedding night. You go on the day, you make the covenant, and at night that oneness is consummated for the marriage. And God says, I made them one with a portion of the spirit in their union. That's a hard phrase to unpack it, but, but, uh, but the idea is that God in his spirit, he's, these are all spiritual things going on here. There's a oneness. And notice what it says, it says uh, in verse 15, and what was, the, what, was the, what was God seeking out of this? Why does God want marriage this way? The answer, godly offspring. Godly marriages train up godly children. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be godly if you don't come from a picture-perfect family. As a matter of fact, many of you know, my parents were divorced when I was five years old uh, around that time. And I, I, neither one of my parents remarried. I, I grew up uh, not knowing anything or seeing anything other than a divorced family. Um, and so I'm not saying that if you've grown up in a divorced family or a broken family or you've been adopted or anything like that, that you can't be a godly person. But what God is saying here is the, the ideal... For a godly family is that you have a man and a woman covenanted together, raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Which also means you don't have to actually be divorced to live like you're divorced. And so that just because you're married doesn't mean you're being a picture-perfect godly family. And by the way, there's no such thing as a perfect, picture-perfect family, uh, regardless of what Instagram may tell us. But anything outside of God's intention for marriage is not conducive. It's not ideal to nurturing godly children. Now I want to close this section as we begin to move on with this directive. Uh, if you notice in verse 15 and in verse 16, here's what God says. God says, okay, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's, here's the application. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. There it is. I mean, can we all write, it's okay to write in your Bibles. I would just encourage you, underline that, circle that, highlight that, memorize that. Here's what God wants. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now listen, I don't think I need to be overly specific about the many ways men defile the marriage covenant. And yes, women too. He's talking to the guys here. But I do want to ask a couple questions from this passage. This is for every man and woman, young and old, married or single. And the first question is this. And try to figure out if you're defiling God's covenant, if you're, if you're, if you're guarding yourself, and, or if you're being faithless to your wife. First thing, are your eyes captive to any image, video, novel, magazine, or even a real person that steals your affection from your spouse and creates a standard of beauty in your mind that you prefer other than the beauty of your spouse? Maybe simply put, are you looking at anything, fantasizing about anything that no longer has your spouse as your standard of beauty? Secondly, do you habitually fantasize about a sensuous experience or a life free from the commitment of a covenanting marriage? Men, are you protecting your wife or are you hurting her? Verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. Remember in Ruth, uh, where Ruth goes to Boaz and Boaz covers her with, with the blanket? The, the picture there of being protected. And what God's saying here is these men who are defiling the marriage, they're covering their wives with this, this blanket. As if they're beating her. And maybe she doesn't even know you are. 
So are you protecting her? And I'm not just asking if you've got a bunch of guns laying around the house. Are you protecting her or are you hurting her? Another question, are you protecting other women or are you consuming them? In Genesis chapter 1, Eve wasn't created by God to be consumed by Adam, but protected and honored and cherished. If you're single, are you right now guarding your heart from any deviation from God's intended purposes of sexual activity? These are all ways in which we defile the covenant. And you right now, in your own mind, in your own heart, God is sitting across the table from many of you right now. He's already, you've already got it pinpointed. And so God is saying, God is saying, guard your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit. And this can only be done through Jesus Christ. This can only be done. A love for Jesus Christ is the only thing that will ever break the chains of an addiction or of, 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 uh, of uh, mental uh, fantasies that are habitual prolonging too long with our eyes or our minds. It's only through a a sweeter, more loving Jesus Christ. Because you can put up all the accountability filters you want on your computer, but when it comes down to it, if you're going to commit the act, you're going to do it. And no amount of accountability will ever keep you from that. Many of you guys already know that. We must guard our hearts. We must protect women. keep moving on they were defiling God's covenant his covenant of marriage thirdly and as we get into chapters 3 and 4 this is probably some of the most familiar stuff because Jesus uh, comes in a lot here and a lot of quotations in the New Testament so it might be a little more familiar but they are also number 4 they were doubting God's justice and in verse 17 it says you have wearied the Lord with your words but you say how have we wearied him And here's how they weary the Lord. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's what they say. They say, everyone, if you're doing evil, then God's for you. And God delights in evil, wicked people. Okay, which is also another another sign of our own wickedness. And they ask, where's the God of justice? So they accuse God of favoring the wicked. And, uh, and they, were, they were, if you remember, this is happening during the Nehemiah. So they're rebuilding the wall. They're facing opposition. And they're trying to figure out why all the other nations get to go, you know, ha- happy dory through life. And, and they're struggling so much. Why do the wicked prosper? That's the question. Habakkuk, we looked at that. He struggled with it. Job struggled with that question. Asaph in Psalm 73 struggled with that question. But they were so blind to see the part they played in all this. Yes, God promised them blessing, prosperity, peace, and protection and success. But it was only as they upheld, upheld their end of the covenant. And they were blind. They were denying God's love. We've already seen that. They were despising God's name. We've already seen that. They were defiling God's covenant. We've already seen that. Now they're doubting God's justice. And God uses this section to warn them that, hey, my justice is coming, and it's coming on you unless you too repent. In chapter 3, he sends a messenger. We'll just sit briefly here. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Many of you might remember this coming in the book of Matthew, referring to John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, Jesus says this does refer, in a sense, to John the Baptist, the man who came and proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Covenant before Jesus died, he comes and proclaims the Lamb of God. Now, remember saying, they're doubting God's justice, and there's a guy that's going to come and talk about Jesus. What's, what's the connection there? Well, the connection there is, if you ever doubt God's justice, just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it was on the cross of Jesus Christ that Jesus took the wrath that sinners deserve, and he took it on himself and he paid it all. And so God is just in justifying sinners because of Jesus Christ. Now, the second part of chapter 3, verse 1, now jumps to the second coming of Jesus. So again, everything in the church here, we've mentioned this before, they didn't see. So he goes from the first coming of Jesus and this messenger that's going to prepare the way before him, all the way to the second coming, where this, this, uh, this, this other messenger of the covenant, who's Jesus Christ, He's going to come, and he's going to bring fire with him. Verse 2, he's gonna, it's the day of his coming. And who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire. And so this man bringing judgment, and that's Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus will be sudden, and it will be filled with wrath. Jesus came the first time to deal with sin uh, by way of pain for sin, but the next time he comes, he's going to judge sin. Number five, they were doubting God's justice, and he says, hey, I've got a messenger coming, and I've got a man coming. He's going to prove again that I, I, don't, I don't delight in wickedness. Number five, they were defrauding God's house. Here they were robbing the Lord. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Israel, or of Jacob, are not consumed. He says at the end of verse 7, return to me, and I will return to you. And here it goes again. But you say, well, how shall we return? And God says, are you going to rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And they say to God, how have we been robbing you? So God does not change. That's how he starts this. I, the Lord, do not change. This is a proof text. I did a paper in seminary on the immutability of God. Immutability is a way of saying that God does not change. And this was one of the proof texts, uh, one of the more popular proof texts that's used to talk about how God doesn't change. But the thing we need to understand in this context is this. The unchangeable God will not reorient his holiness to our wickedness. God is getting, he's laying it all out there, their wickedness and all this stuff, and God says, I'm not going to change. My holiness will not change. And all of us at one time or another have pictured a God who changes. Anytime we've made, made ourselves believe that our sin isn't that bad, Anytime we believe that our sin wasn't that big of a deal, we're picturing a God who changes. Anytime we made ourselves believe that God is turning a blind eye to our sin or ignoring it, we are picturing a God who changes. And God won't change his mind about sin. And so God goes to the fact that they're robbing him through tithes. And this is kind of the, the idea here is that God is saying, listen, I'm going I'm to drop the one big thing that's going to basically cover everything. This is going to be the big summary to show you how it is that you need to change your ways entirely. You need to change all your ways. And God says, you're robbing me with your tithes and your contributions. They failed to tithe. Now, we need to understand, very simply, God, again, this goes back to an old system of the old covenant, but God uh, assigned three different tithes to the people that they were required to give. 
and it was basically to provide for the Levites because they didn't get any houses or land because they were to take care of the tabernacle. So the tithe was to help support the Levites and the priests. And then the other part of it was basically to go to those who were poor. So that's why God said, you need to tithe because you need to provide for the, the priests and the Levites and you need to help support the poor. Now they just quit doing all of that. And so they, they quit bringing their tithes. And so they couldn't provide for the temple work or they couldn't provide for the poor. And they may have thought that, you know, if, if I don't tithe, this was, a, this was a good way to keep money in my own pockets. But notice what God says in verse 9. He says, you are cursed with a curse because you are robbing me. Now get this. They were robbing God. But in reality, they were just robbing themselves. God says, I'd give you so much more grain if you just obey my commands. God kind of flips the tables here. And he says, you're robbing yourself. God rewards faithful, generous, sacrificial giving. And I think it's, it's similar for us today, and we're going we're gonna to show that here in a minute. But there are, there are spiritual benefits that come with giving, and God often blesses us in other ways. Now, if you give because you expect God to bless you in a certain way, don't expect anything from God. That's selfishness. But here's God's promise and expectation for us when it comes to giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, notice this, to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's God's promise to you. That you will be fully supplied to do the work of the Lord. That he will make all grace abound to you. And that just comes from a heart that is simply yielded to him. I want you to notice in the middle of verse 10. Where God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Bring it all in. And he says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. This is, by my understanding, this is the only time, the only time in the Bible where God invites his people to test him. And it's in this right here. It's as if God wanted to prove that he's got the bigger shovel. I heard a preacher once say that until God, until God can get a, man, a hand on a man's wallet, he won't be able to get his hand on anything else. It's that famous phrase, he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And their robbery of God by way of withholding the tithe was representative of their whole lives. And I'm not saying there's an amount you need to give or anything like that. The New Testament doesn't specify that for us. We just looked at God's intention for our giving. But the idea was they didn't, God didn't have their all. And the same principle applies for us today. I think we can look at our checkbooks and our accounts, we can look at how we spend our money to see how much of our lives God really has. I think also when it comes to this whole thing, kind of keeping money for ourselves, you know, we kind of fall in for the lie that responsibility is on us to manufacture a full life. You know, it's like, like uh, William Wallace in Braveheart, where, he, where he's, it's that famous line, every man dies, but not, not every man truly lives. Caribou coffee, I know I just jumped from Braveheart to coffee, and you're like, how does that work? Not sure, but caribou coffee, you know what the motto is for caribou coffee? 
life is short, stay awake for it. You know, like, it's all on you to make sure you have the fullest life that you could possibly have. It's deceptive. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said in John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Your money, your possessions, you go buy all the possessions you want, there's not going to be abundant life in that. And so the way we use the most valuable resource we have, money, reveals where we think life truly comes from. We need to close with the final section here. It's a rehearsal of things we've talked about so many times already, but the, the sixth dispute is that they were disregarding God's plan. These religious leaders were, well, these people were religious on the outside, they were rotten on the inside. And again, they accused God of being indifferent towards justice. And they even complained that following God wasn't worth anything. It didn't do anything for him. That's verse 14. What is the profit of our keeping his charge and walking in mourning? Like, no, there's no point in following God. That's what they were saying. And it's a vain pursuit. And listen, if, if, you're, if you're expecting God and you complain about God not giving you the job you want, the health you wanted, the money you wanted, the ministry you wanted you will naturally just fall into saying this is pointless. God is worthless. He's not worth following. But if you want life, eternal life, you want forgiveness from sins, you want to be brought into God's family, God will give you full, abundant life. And that's what this assembly does in verse 16, and you can take time to read through that. But the close of chapter 4, just want to point out that there are no more questions here. 29 questions and 9 of those but you say phrases in chapters 1 to 3. Chapter 4, no more questions, no more but you say, God gets the final word. And he says, the day is coming, it's burning like an oven. That day, it's, God's going to set a blaze. I'm going to leave neither root nor branch, verse 1. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And go out leaping like calves from the stall. Verse 5, this is how he closes, 5 and 6, this is how he closes the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God goes silent. The last words of the Old Testament aren't the comforting words of Haggai and Zechariah, but the rebuking words of Malachi. And just like for us, Jesus' last words to the church were the, the same way, repent. The next thing these people would hear from God, you know what it would be? It would be Zechariah. An angel would appear to him and say, hey, you're going to have a son, and he's going to prepare the way for Messiah. Six months later, another angel would show up, and God would speak to a virgin named Mary, and say, you're going to give birth to a son soon. His name's Jesus. You're going to call him Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sin. 400 years of dead silence goes by. God has been silent as well. He's given us his word. This is sufficient. This has everything. This is his word to us now. This is everything we need. But God's been silent. No angels appearing. No new revelation. God isn't speaking new words. We've got it all right here. But the next time we hear from God will be when Jesus returns and he calls his people to be with him forever and he judges the wicked. And listen, if you're not a Christian, please understand that God is inviting you to, into his family. 
You may think God won't accept you, he won't love you or want you because of your past or your failures, but he does. And he invites you to surrender and trust in Christ as your savior. So God is sitting across the table from you, and through this message, I trust something. God pointed at your heart and said, this is it. This is it right here. What will you do about it? Will you repent? Will you get honest with God? Say, God, this is, this is how filthy I've been. This is how broken I am. And I know the brokenness and the filthiness is only made clean through Jesus Christ. Help me. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for sitting across the table from us, pointing at us, saying, hey, here's what's going on in your heart. Here's what's going on in your life. Lord, may repentance and confession and hope of Jesus Christ fill every heart. In Jesus' name.